the book of Ruth. Finished up Galatians, now we're going to go to the Old Testament. Uh, kind of, my plan is to go back and forth. So we finished up a New Testament book, now we'll go to the Old Testament and, uh, and take on Ruth. And uh, It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, it really is, and for a number of different reasons. But there is a story that's told of Benjamin Franklin when he was an ambassador to France. And he would meet with this group of intellectuals who would constantly mock him and make fun of him because of his uh, faith in the Bible. And he was not convinced that this group of guys knew what they were talking about. He just wasn't convinced they even knew anything about the Bible. And so the next time they got together, um, he said, gentlemen, I have found the most intriguing love story and I'd like to read it for you here tonight because I think you're gonna find it interesting. And he starts to read from this handwritten copy of the book of Ruth. He pulls it out and he reads those four short chapters. And after he gets done, this group of guys exclaim, they're like, that is one of the best love stories we've ever heard. You have to publish that immediately. <laughs> and then Franklin says it already has been published because it's in the Bible. And these guys had no idea. And I think a lot of people would be surprised that a book like Ruth is in the Bible. Uh, there was a bumper sticker back in the day that said, Jesus, yes. Church, no. And, you know, people don't typically have a problem with Jesus. We talked about this last week. They don't necessarily know who he was because the video that we watched last week, there are all kinds of different opinions on who he was. But sometimes people mock the Bible. Right? This is all full of all kinds of errors and contradictions, and it's not really culturally relevant for today. Um, or, you know, they just don't like church because they're looking at some of the people that claim to be reading the Bible and they say no thanks. Um, so they may have a problem with the Bible, they may have a problem with church. Um, in a previous job that I had, uh, we had an off-site retreat. So once a year, we would take a day and we would go somewhere uh, and we would talk about the upcoming year and goals and, you know, do team building exercises and all that kind of fun stuff. And as part of that, they told everybody, so listen, we want everybody to do a seven-minute stand-up presentation. Do you want whatever you want? It could be on a hobby, it could be on an interest. And when they first said that, I was pretty excited because I, I had a motorcycle and uh, I thought, man, I can talk about Harley-Davidson, I can talk about the history behind it, it'll be really cool. And I remember having that thought for about 30 seconds because then I heard God say, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to talk about? And I just heard, he impressed it upon me in an unmistakable way. He's like, you need to talk about Jesus, and you need to talk about, talk about the Bible. And I was like, okay. I don't know if you've ever given a speech in front of your non-Christian co-workers before about Jesus and the Bible, but I was a little bit nervous. Uh, a little bit nervous. I know it's kind of hard to believe now, but... The day came, and we actually did it out at Royal Stadium, which was really cool. We were in this boardroom that overlooked the stadium, the field, uh, and I was really excited. But the whole time, my hands are sweating, and I'm just like thinking about, you know, getting up in front of all my colleagues uh, and talking about the Bible and talking about Jesus. Um, because these people, it sounds strange to say, but I had seen these people more often than I see my kids sometimes. I mean, I'm with these guys all day long. They know how I act. They know how I talk. They know the way I do business. My witness was on display every single day, and now I was about to take it to a whole other level. And so everybody's doing their presentations, and here it comes, it comes my time. So I get up, and I talk about 
Um, okay, let's talk about the Bible. And I went through 66 books, right, written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, and three languages, no contradictions, and how amazing this is. I talked about Jesus and all of the prophecies that he fulfilled, and just the mathematic probabilities or impossibilities of one person fulfilling just like three or four of the prophecies that he fulfilled, um, you know, being you know, in the tribe of Judah, from Bethlehem, and dying on a cross, all these kind of things. Um, and then at the end of it, I, I basically just said, listen, read it for yourself. I double-dogged area. Just read the Bible for yourself. And that's kind of how I left it. Um, I think a lot of people, if they read the Bible for themselves, would be surprised to find a book like Ruth in there. We spent the last four months going through Galatians and Paul's letter to this church, group of churches in Galatia, uh, who had a problem with legalism and talking about grace and how it's not what they can do. It's all about what God has done. And it was a group of people that had been basically tired of trying to keep up religion. It was a group of people who were burned out. And if Galatians was written to a group of people who were burned out, then the book of Ruth is for people that are bummed out. Um, it's a message of hope to people who are wiped out, to people that are hopeless, that are frustrated. I might have to turn this thing off. It's going to drive me crazy. Sorry, folks. Um, one of the reasons we need to be familiar with the word is that, as we know, life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, we know this. Um, in John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them his time is growing short. It's getting near for him to be betrayed, that he's going to go back to the Father. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Helper is going to come and how he's going to work. And that their sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And that they're going to go through hard times, but not to worry because he's going to be with them. And he says, listen, you're going to have difficult times. In this world, you'll have trouble, but fear not. Take heart. Don't despair. I have overcome the world. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, the writer is talking about entering into the rest of God and the rest that he provides. So listen, we need to be vigilant. We need to keep watch over our souls. And we need to be in the word. We need to not get lax. It tells us that the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is active. It's living. It is dividing between soul and spirit, between bone and marrow. And what does that even mean? And he's talking about entering rest. But he's also talking about keeping watch over our souls. Basically, wherever you are in life, whatever season of life you're in, if you open up this book, it's going to speak to you. God is going to speak to you. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you into all truth, which is why we need to be familiar with it. Sometimes um, Christians, we're not even as familiar with the Bible as we need to be. And so, you know, as people are mocking the Bible or making fun of those who put their faith and trust in the Bible, we need to be those who can actually defend the faith, can know the Bible, can bring the word in due season, can bring some truth to them. This book of Ruth is one of my favorites in the Bible. It's a book about sorrow being turned into joy. Um, it's been said that what the Mona Lisa is to art, the book of Ruth is to literature. It's a very, very special book. Um, it's a beautiful love story. Yes, it is. Um, so I got a little bit of feedback that when we're going through the book of Ruth, like... Uh, isn't that kind of a love story? But it is a love story. It's beautiful because it's a picture of salvation. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. The themes of Ruth are redemption and revival and then also restoration. 
redemption, revival, and restoration. And if you're in a season of life right now, if you're currently going through uh, a season where you're in the dumps, or if it feels like life is broken, things have been turned upside down, then the book of Ruth is for you. Um, we could all use some revival. We could all use some restoration. Uh, but if we've put our hope and our trust and our faith in Jesus, then we have already been redeemed. But we could all use some revival. We could all use some restoration. Um, this is going to be a little bit teachy today. I'll warn you ahead of time. Uh, there is a lot that we have to address as we get started in the book of Ruth. There's a lot of historical context that we need to bring into it if we're going to understand it correctly. And so you guys stick with me, okay? All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's only one of two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. The other one being Esther. So you've got Ruth and Esther, two books named after women. It is the only book, and I knew this, but when I read it, I was like, huh. It is the only book named after one of Jesus' ancestors, Ruth. Um, we only hear, as significant as Ruth is, we only hear about her one other time in the Bible, and it's in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus where she's mentioned again. And as important as she is, uh, we have to remember that when we read through the scriptures, no matter what we're reading through, Old Testament, New Testament, our job is to look for Jesus in the story, right? Not to look for ourselves, not to look at the human participants in the story, right? They're humans just like you and I, but to look for Jesus and what he's doing in the story. So let's start off in the book of Ruth. We're going to do the first five verses. <laughs> In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives... The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, but Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Not a happy story starting off. Um, this book dates itself in the beginning by saying that it is during the book of when the judges ruled. It's about a 300-year span. And we've been a country for, what, 250 years? This was 300 years where they were basically ruled by judges. And the way that it had been set up is judges had been placed in cities throughout Israel and Judah. And if you had a problem or if you needed justice, you would go to one of these places and you would meet with the judges and get some type of resolution. Uh, but then there were also mighty judges whom God raised up to deliver his people. Um, and so, you know, they would fall into this familiar cycle of walking away from God and getting caught up in idolatry and all of the, you know, the evil people that surrounded them. And then they would get delivered over into their enemies. God would have to discipline them. And then they would go through a season where there was slavery or just being attacked by their enemies. And then they would cry out to God and he would send a deliverer very graciously. And then they would go through this cycle and it gets a little wearisome when you read through the Old Testament. And you're like, come on, don't you guys get it yet? But we're the same way. We're the exact same way. And God is so gracious to us. Um, I saw this on social media. Somebody posted this. I laughed. I thought it was hysterical. Um, go ahead. God, do this. Narrator. But they did not. <laughs> this was the Israelites. God said, do this. But they didn't. They got in trouble. And we're the same way. But God is gracious. Who were the judges? Well, 
The Bible tells us, ironically enough, in a book called Judges. <laughs> the Bible's easy. It doesn't make it difficult. These included people like Joshua. Joshua was the first judge, Moses' right-hand man. Uh, also included somebody called Gideon. If you remember Gideon, uh, the angel showed up to Gideon and called him a mighty man of valor. And Gideon was hiding out in a wine press trying to sift wheat in there because he was scared of the Midianites. So the angel shows up, mighty man of valor. <laughs> Looking around. Somebody else in here. This is the guy when God said, I'm going to use you to lead my people against the Midianites. He said, well, I tell you what, I'm going to put out a fleece. And if the ground is dry, but the sheep's fleece is wet, then I'll know that what you're saying is true. Testing God. And so he wakes up, sure enough, ground's dry, fleece is wet. I tell you what, let's do the opposite, and then I'll really know if it's true. And again, God graciously grants his request. Yes, he uses Gideon mightily against the Midianites and frees the people. Uh, most well-known of, of all the judges, Samson, we talked about him a few weeks ago. And then two of the nation's earliest prophets, Eli and Samuel, are all part of this season, this 300-year period of the judges. And in Judges 17, 6, it tells us that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This was a pretty turbulent time. This phrase, um, there was no king in Israel, is important because it signals two things. First, it signals that the people of Israel are in desperate need of a king. They are not following the Lord. They need a godly leader. They need a king. And then it also sets the expectation of a coming king. So first, they need a king. And then second, the expectation that there is going to be one coming. And this book was written not too long after another kid from Bethlehem comes along and delivers the people of Israel and King David. And we know that it's written after him because, spoiler alert, he appears at the end of the book. So um, I found this quote by Martin Nussbaum, and I thought he said it perfectly, so I thought I would just read it. It says, interestingly, there are only two things that the Lord explicitly performs in the narrative, and each corresponds directly to the two problems of famine and Israel's need for a king. He visits his people, giving them food, and enables Ruth to conceive. It's because of the former that Ruth meets her redeemer, Boaz, in Bethlehem, and because of the latter that they successfully produce an heir, Obed, the grandfather of King David. The famine is put in check, and the heir is born. Here it is vital that we notice that the repeated mention of David at the close of the narrative functions to connect Ruth to the other end of its canonical context, the time of the kings. In providing for his people then, God was also providing for a future deliverer. So here we have the story of Ruth, which is connecting this time of the judges to when the kings are coming. David is mentioned at the end. And in this little book, which spans about 12 years in total, uh, we find a happy Hebrew family at least before the famine came in. So how do we know that they were a happy family? Well, Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, his name means God is my king. That's pretty cool when your name could double as your testimony. You say, what's your name? My name is God is my king. Oh, cool. What's your name? No, that's it. <laughs> that's my testimony. God's my king. And he is married to a woman named Naomi. Her name means pleasant. So God is my king is married to pleasant, and they have a couple of kids, a couple of boys. The first one, Malon, means song, and the second one, Chilion, means um, satisfaction. And this happy family lives in a very special place called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. 
Which is interesting, because Jesus came from Bethlehem and he called himself the bread of life as he came from Bethlehem. Interesting. We will always find ourselves filled with song and filled with satisfaction. We're going to be pleasant to be around when God is our king and we dwell in the house of bread. When we dwell in his house, we are going to be satisfied. We're going to be full of song when God's our king. I just thought that was a really neat way to say that. Um, but we see a problem here in Bethlehem because of famine hits. How could a famine afflict the house of bread? Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, it's called the house of bread, and yet we find ourselves in a famine. Remember, this is the time in Judges where people just did what was right in their own eyes. They were basically living by their own conscience. This is basically what we've been doing here in America for 250 years. And you can see that we are drifting farther and farther away from God in our culture as people just live by what's right in their own eyes. To make it worse, they were surrounded by evil nations all the way around them. And from time to time, unfortunately, they would get caught up. They would get trapped. They would get ensnared by some of these evil, evil people and worshiping some of their gods. And God told his people, he said, listen, if you turn away from me, if you start worshiping other gods, if you start falling into idolatry, I'm going to afflict the land. And it's going to dry up. It's going to become unfruitful. And then you're going to be afflicted as a result. And so, too, if we neglect our time with God, if we neglect coming to church and being in the house of bread, we are going to experience dry times. If we're not in his word, we're going to become unfruitful. A prophet named Amos, I like Amos, uh, he was just a farmer. He didn't even claim to be a prophet, but God called Amos and he said, listen, I want you to go prophesy. Amos was obedient and he went to speak to the Israelites, not at a time of trouble, but in a time of great prosperity. The people in Israel had grown lazy. They had grown comfortable. Um, they were forgetting. They were ignoring people in need. They were oppressing the poor. They were taking care of themselves and totally forgetting about God. And Amos comes along. I cheated. I marked Amos because if you're like me, you haven't been in Amos for a while. Some <laughs> dust fell out when I turned to Amos. So Amos chapter 8 Verses 11 and 12, he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Not a famine of bread or water, but of the word of the Lord. And indeed, there was a famine of the word of the Lord. 400 years passed between the last prophet in Israel, Malachi, and when John the Baptist showed up on the scene. That's why it was such a huge deal. For 400 years, there hadn't been anybody in Israel going around saying, thus says the Lord. And then John the Baptist shows up and he's radical, living out in the desert, wearing camel skin underwear, <laughs> chomping on bugs. That's why he was such a big deal. This particular instance, we have an actual famine, and Elimelech leads his family out of Bethlehem, away from God's people, to make his life in the world, to go try to find food, find success out there. They journey around the Dead Sea into a land called Moab. It's interesting because in Amos, he says you will travel north and east. If you go around the Dead Sea, you're going north and then over to the east into Moab. They thought they had a chance of a lifetime to go in and make a new life there in Moab. But what they would find is that it would be a death march. The question isn't if we're going to run into 
difficulties and dry times in our lives, but it's when. There will be seasons where we don't see anything green, where we don't see anything growing. doesn't seem like anything's happening. But the real question is, is when those times come along in our life, where do we go? Do we stay? Do we stay in the house of bread? Do we stay in God's house, seek his face, know that he's with us? Or do we start wandering away out into the world trying to find answers there? So many times in scripture we hear God say, I will be with you. Fear not, I will never leave you. I am faithful to you. Um, and so God never leaves us, but unfortunately sometimes we just walk away from him. And when we do, um, we walk through that fire all by ourselves. And uh, we end up isolating ourselves from the Father. Uh, we run into difficulty. We try to flee them at all costs. We try to change our circumstance instead of staying in the Lord's house. We begin to leave God's protection. And when we wander out from under his protection, we start to look for the answers in the world. Uh, we open ourselves up to death spiritually. Well, Nathan, you might say, they're not going very far. I mean, they're just on the other side of the Dead Sea. I mean, what's the big deal? What's so wrong about Moab? What's the problem? Well, Moab didn't have a very good start. In fact, it had a very sordid beginning. Uh, it started with a man named Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. And a man who also moved his family into greener pastures. He was looking for material success. And they ended up in a place called Sodom. Um, Abraham's herders and lots were getting in fights. They had been very blessed and they had tons of cattle, tons of herds. And so uh, as they were fighting, Abraham said, this is not good. And he took him up to the countryside where they could see everything. And we'll just read it together. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. 13 verse 9. And Abraham said, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Not a good plan. Pitched their tents towards Sodom and it didn't go well. As a matter of fact, we find out that they actually went from setting their tents outside of Sodom to moving into Sodom. We find out later, um, as God sends two angels down to get them out of there before he destroys the city. They actually come to Lot and they say, listen, God's going to destroy the city. It's time to leave. And they start dragging their feet. They're not in a hurry. They start deciding, I don't know what to pack. I mean, are we going to bring swimsuits? We should probably bring sun, suntan lotion. Angels are like, seriously, we have to go now. And they still dilly-dally around. To the point where they grab them physically and take them out of the city. They drag them out. And it's a we can't talk about it now. It's a really cool picture of the rapture. I mean, God is getting ready to pour out his wrath on this God-rejecting, evil city. And the angel comes in and grabs them out of there. And someday, I'll get to teach them. Unless the rapture comes first. <laughs> but God takes them out of the city with Lot's wife. And it says, as they are leaving, they're not supposed to look back. It says, don't look back. Get out of here. And she looks back. And it's not that she just looked back. She looked back with longing. Like she was 
depressed. She was sad that God was destroying this evil city. She liked it. She loved it there in L.A. But God was destroying it. She looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. No? Okay. <laughs> turned into a pillar of salt. So now it's just Lot and his two grown daughters. And God had just destroyed Sodom. He just destroyed Gomorrah. All the men are gone. They're not real excited about moving into another city. So they move into a cave. They start holed up there. And the daughters catch this terrible plot. Terrible plot. Because they start thinking about, listen, our dad is old. We have no one to take care of us. I mean, the men are all gone. So we need to have kids. So they have this terrible plan to get their dad drunk. And along come two kids, two boys. One boy named, I'm keeping this PG, <laughs> I'm trying to, um, Ben-Ami, and the other, you guessed it's name, was Moab. Ben-Ami and Moab come out of this relationship, and they start the Ammonite and the Moabite peoples, who were a constant source of frustration with the Israelites. They were always warring with the Israelite people. So that's where the Moabites started. They started in a cave, but they were going to end in a grave. Check this out, Zephaniah. Now, a couple books past Amos, Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 8. Actually, it's 8 through 11. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. I think it's interesting. They were fleeing. Sodom and Gomorrah, and those two boys that came out of that incestuous relationship are going to become just like Sodom and Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. A remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. In this land of Moab, they worship a god named Shamash, and Shamash the destroyer or the subduer, and just like a lot of the people in Canaan, they had very evil, very vile practices. Uh, they were into human sacrifices and all of this type of stuff. And that's the reason why when they went into the promised land, God said, you need to completely annihilate the people that are there. They are slowly killing themselves and they need to be wiped out because if you don't, it's going to be trouble. And unfortunately, they did not. God said they did not. In Psalms 108.9, God calls Moab his wash basin and he's not talking about washing his hands. When God calls Moab his wash basin, it's a very polite way of saying that Moab is my toilet bowl. And so when Elimelech took his family out of Bethlehem, out of God's people, he literally took them on a tour of the toilet bowl. I'm sure they didn't plan on staying in the toilet bowl. I'm sure they weren't planning on staying in Moab. I'm sure they were just going over there to get by, to go over there to make a life while there was a famine in the land of Judah. They were planning on coming back, but it didn't happen. They got sucked in to Moab, and it didn't go well. They started circling the toilet bowl. They got sucked into the carnality of Moab. And it can be tough to get out of when we open ourselves up to the things of this world. Ask Naomi. I mean, Naomi spent 10 years there, and she lost everything. Tells us this is land of Moab. Uh, unfortunately, they had taken foreign wives. I mean, as if it wasn't bad enough that their dad had taken them out of Bethlehem, they also took foreign wives, which is forbidden. Uh, one of them named Orpah. Orpah's name has a couple different meanings. None of them are very good. Uh, one of them means drooping neck. 
uh, or shadow. Uh, doesn't sound like somebody who's going to brighten your day all that much. And then the other is Ruth. And Ruth means friendship. And she proved her friendship when she clung to Naomi and said, I'm not going to leave you. Internally, a lot gets ascribed to Ruth, but her kindness and her commitment and her faithfulness. Um, but externally, we can't forget that she was a Moabite. She was a Moabite Gentile. So turn with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. A lot of scripture this morning. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pizzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to the sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And indeed, indeed they did. So this happy Hebrew family leaves the house of bread in community with God's people and headed out into the world where they'd fall into ruin. That's usually the way it is. Satan would love for us to take a break. We're going to come back. Right? We're just taking a break. We're just going to check out a church for a little bit. And what happens more often than not is you get sucked into the carnality of the world and you open yourself up to ruin. So many times we think that we are finding our place in the world, but what actually is happening is that the world is finding its way in us. When we make the focus of the world um, our central thing in our life. We talked last week about Simon the Cyrene, uh, the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to the top. And how his interaction with Jesus, his experience with him up on the hill, changed him radically. Because we know that his sons were part of the church in Rome. And his family tree was altered eternally. But the same can be true if we take a break, if we walk out, if we lead our families away from the church, away from God. Our family trees can be altered eternally too, in the wrong direction. You might say, well Nathan, you're painting a pretty bleak picture here. I mean, that's not the reason why I came to church this morning. It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. I mean, think about it. In that culture, women, if they didn't have somebody to take care of, if they didn't have a husband, if they didn't have sons, they were in a pretty dire situation. It could be a death sentence to them. I mean, it wasn't like they could just go get a job. And so a lot of times what this would lead to is either selling themselves into slavery or prostitution, or something like that. I mean, it could very well be the end for them. It was bad. It was pretty bleak. There are several themes throughout this book, but the best of them is God's picture of redemption. That's the reason why I love this book so much. Yes, it has faithfulness. Yes, it has some romance and commitment. But as we look for Jesus in the story, we find his plan of redemption. God's saving grace to a rebellious and stiff-necked people that walk away, they get cut off from relationship in him. And once that happens, they fall into ruin. Rebellious people that opens themselves up, that falls into ruin and death. We need desperately a savior. We need a redeemer. And so we see a shift in this book from human depravity over to God's saving provision. From human depravity to God's saving provision. 
And just as they were now under a covenant curse, they were about to experience a covenant blessing. God's love for his people is ultimately going to win out. He chooses us even when we are faithless. He is faithful. There's a, there's a, a story in Numbers 23, and uh, I'll just tell it to you. But basically what happens is the people of Israel are going into the promised land, and they're going past the land of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, sees them coming, and there's so many of them, he starts to freak out. because He says, there's people are going to wipe us off the face of the earth. And so he goes and he hires a prophet named Balaam. You may remember Balaam and the donkey. Uh, the talking donkey is a great story. But he hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And so he takes them up on the mountain. He says, I want you to curse these people. I'll make you rich. And he says, I can only speak the words that God tells me to speak. And four times he opens up his mouth. And each time a blessing comes out instead of a curse. He can't help it. Every time he opens up his mouth, he pronounces a blessing instead of a curse. Even though they were stiff-necked, and actually right after that story where he pronounced blessing over them, they fall into sin. It's part of the cycle. But God chose them. He loves them. He's going to redeem them. Even when things look bleak, even when there's no hope at all, God still cares. He still pursues us. He can still breathe life into our situation. Even when we can't see it. God had already planned redemption for Naomi. He had already prepared a redeemer for him, a man named Boaz, somebody that was a relative of hers in Bethlehem, was already there. Check this out. Boaz's name means in him is strength. Isn't that awesome? God had prepared someone ahead of time who had the strength and the willingness to want to redeem and save Naomi. But that's not the end of the story. This is where it gets interesting. Naomi wasn't the only one that was saved. She came back with somebody named Ruth. And we can't forget who she was. Naomi was an Israelite. She was part of the family. But Ruth was a Moabite. The Israelites hated the Moabites. They hated the Gentiles. And yet she is accepted in because of her devotion to Naomi and her devotion to her God. She says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so it's a beautiful picture of the gospel as this Gentile woman is grafted into the family because of her devotion to Naomi. When Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, he's writing about us all being one in Christ. So if we go to Galatians, the next book, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. This is a lot, but one in Christ. Therefore, remember that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and preached to those who were near. For those through him, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, 
you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once we were separated from God, but now we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. You may find yourself in a season where you feel abandoned, where you feel like life's upside down or broken. But if you do, stay tuned, because God is a restorer. He is a rebuilder. He's a reviver. In those situations in life where it feels lifeless, he can breathe life into it. It's interesting because God uses a famine in the land to bring about his purposes. So you may be going through a famine right now. Um, this past week uh, marked eight years since we had gone through our famine. And our son, Levi, was taken home to be with the Lord. And, you know, as much as we didn't understand it, um, God used that to accomplish his purposes. Some of them we know, some of them we'll never know until we get there. Um, and that's okay. But God used that family to bring about his purposes. And he'll bring about in your life, he'll breathe into that and revive it. Did anybody watch The Chosen uh, Season 2? Uh, last week on Sunday, it was good. You should watch it. Um, I don't know if I've said that before. It's pretty good. <laughs> but in it, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan family. And she's asking him, she says, listen, when will this be fixed? Everything is so broken. Everything is so messed up. When is it going to be fixed? And Jesus tells her, he says, listen, in this world, hearts will still break. Bones will still break. But ultimately, the light will overcome the darkness. God's light will overcome the darkness. He's going to win out because he is faithful, yeah. even when we're faithless. Yeah. In 1989, there was an 8.2 earthquake, 8.2 on the Richter scale earthquake that almost flattened Armenia. And 30,000 people died in less than four minutes. And when the shaking stopped, there was a father who rushed out of the house and ran to where his son's school was. And when he got there, he saw it, it had been flattened like a pancake. And he ran to the corner of the school where his son's classroom was. And there were a bunch of people there mourning and wailing. And uh, he started clearing away the rubble. And people were telling him, they're saying, listen, it's too late. They're dead. There's nothing you can do. And he would just simply turn to them and say, are you going to help me? And some firemen came along and they said, listen, let us handle it. We're here. Let us do this. And he would simply say, are you going to help me? And he just kept on taking the rubble away. And the, and the police chief came along and he tried to dissuade him and tried to talk him off. And he said, are you going to help me? As he kept lifting rocks and taking rubble away. 12 hours he dug, 24 hours, 36 hours he was digging through the rubble. In the 38th hour, he heard his son's voice. He had made his son a promise, no matter what, I will always be there for you. And he screamed his name. He was like, Armand. And his son screamed back. He said, Dad, it's me. I knew it. I knew you'd come. And I told the kids, I said, my dad, if my dad's alive, he'll come. And when he saves me, all of you guys will be safe too. Because I remembered the promise that you made, that you would always be with me. 14 kids were saved that day because of that father's faithfulness in not giving up in what seemed like a hopeless situation. You guys come up. 
How much more our Heavenly Father is faithful to us, chases us down. We may feel like we are crushed by some of the difficulties in this life, that we are under the rubble, so to speak. But even if that feels true, the reality is, is that we have a hope. We have a Redeemer that we're going to get into. Um, I am really excited about this story. We're going to take communion together now.